My name is Yerne Sekolets. I am Secretary of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, known as UNCITRAL, and the Director of the International Trade Law Division of the UN Office of Legal Affairs. And uh, in my capacity as Secretary of UNCITRAL, I will speak to you about the role of UNCITRAL in harmonization and modernization of uh, the law of international trade. Uh, I think everybody will agree that uh, trade is the lifeblood of uh, the existence of nations and that uh, investment is uh, the basis of creation of wealth. But for trade to take place and investment to be attracted, uh, it is necessary that there are many things that are necessary, but among others, it is necessary that commercial agreements are honored and enforced. Uh, the parties must be able to negotiate their commercial deals uh, in such a way that they are able to achieve what they are set out to achieve, uh, uh, to uh, supply services, to supply goods, uh, uh, and what we call among lawyers is that they have to have what we call the autonomy of parties. They must be free to construct their deals in such a way that, that they will achieve their legitimate goals and the law has to allow that. It is also beneficial if the rules and the laws governing international trade as well as domestic trade are harmonized in the sense that when merchants do business in different countries, those rules do not change too much or do not change in s to such a degree that, uh, that they have a difficulty uh, finding out what the law is, that they have to incur expense uh, to find out what the law is and, and so forth. But, but these three conditions for legal conditions have, have a different meaning. Uh, it is a fact that countries have different legal traditions and they cherish their legal traditions and they are not necessarily willing to unify their laws. So, so we, we live with, with the difference among legal systems. Uh, and, and there is nothing wrong if legal systems are different. Uh, as long as they, as I said, fulfill these two first conditions, that they guarantee the enforcement of contractual obligations and that they, that they do not impede the parties in structuring deals uh, in such a way that they will achieve their legitimate goals. Now, uh, it is difficult for national legislators to figure out themselves uh, or to draft such laws that would meet these conditions. Uh, and uh, governments want to also be sure that they, uh, the laws that they uh, adopt do serve the most modern contract practices and that they are in line with international trends. So the best way to do so uh, is for governments to be able to get high quality advice as to what their national laws should be. And, uh, and states, for that reason, uh, 
engage in international negotiations. And they have done so for decades. For the last century, one, one can say, states have engaged or found international sources of their uh, legislation and other types of rules. And uh, I can give you many examples. For example, uh, the Hague Conference on Private International Law is an organization that is in existence for more than 100 years. And they have been formulating rules uh, governing international relations. Not in terms of what the rights and obligations of parties are, but in terms of which national law applies when we have an international situation. We call this conflict of laws or private international law. Uh, and, and they continue doing that. Then we have UNIDROA, an international intergovernmental organization that is in, in existence for um, sort of 1930s. It's, it, it came into being as, as part of the League of Nations. And they continue uh, producing laws. Uh, then it is uh, regional organizations, uh, the European Union, COMESA in Africa, ASEAN in Asia, uh, the uh, Organization of American States, and the number of such regional organizations is actually growing. WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, is a, is a large organization that is specializing on formulating rules governing intellectual property. And by that we mean patents, copyright, trademarks, uh, know-how, which we know under the collective name of, of intellectual property. Then there are also some very important non-governmental international organizations that are formulating rules. Uh, one of them is, for example, the Comité Maritime International, which, is, which has been very instrumental in producing text governing uh, the carriage of goods by sea and other rules governing uh, maritime affairs. Uh, the International Chamber of Commerce, which is in existence for uh, since the 1920s, has produced some very, very influential, important texts. Uh, for example, in the uh, when today the parties, exporters and importers are using uh, letters of credit, which is an essential payment instrument, they are doing so under the rules prepared and constantly updated by the International Chamber of Commerce. But all these organizations, and the number is actually growing because of the new regional organizations coming up, uh, do, uh, have the characteristic that they are specialized on one particular sector and they are not necessarily seen as universal in the sense that all geographical regions, all legal, uh, countries, or, or all different uh, legal traditions, or all countries at different levels of economic development have a, are adequately or equitably represented in those organizations because their membership varies and so forth. Uh, so, and, and also, 
in particular with the growing number of these organizations, because of their different membership, because of their, their different styles of work, because of their, how um, should I say, corporate philosophy, uh, they don't necessarily coordinate their work in an ideal way. Sometimes we see examples where the rules produced by these various international organisms are not well harmonized, produce frictions. Sometimes we see duplication, which is on the one hand unnecessary expenditure of resources, but duplication is confusing for governments. So there is a need to coordinate the, the, the work of these organizations. Uh, and it is also politically very important, as I, as I indicated uh, a minute ago, that all states have, are assured that all legal traditions, all regions, and all countries at all levels of economic development are, are equally represent, are well represented in this process of formulating rules governing international trade. And it is natural that only the UN can offer such a form. The UN is the only truly uh, global organization where, where virtually every country is, is involved in the work of the UN. And uh, the UN, everybody knows, has, has a lot of uh, items on its agenda. And the UN General Assembly, as the supreme uh, legislative body of the UN, cannot get involved in, in the technical details of commercial legislation. And for that reason, the UN General Assembly established some 40 years ago in uh, 1966, and then uh, the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, which has become known in many circles as UNCITRAL. And it is the task of UNCITRAL as a global organization to formulate rules uh, when it uh, considers it uh, appropriate uh, on the initiative of, of governments or organizations or, of, or also from the private sector. Another task of UNCITRAL is to coordinate, to follow the work of other organizations and do its best to coordinate their work. And if it sees that uh, this coordination is, is, is lacking, th in various ways, through initiatives, try to uh, improve the situation. And that is an express mandate of UNCITRAL. Uh, the task of UNCITRAL is also to promote uniform interpretation of uh, legal texts, its own the text that, that itself has prepared, but also uniform interpretation of, of, of other texts governing uh, international trade. Uh, it is also tasked to promote the teaching of trade law and to disseminate information about trade law among the users, among the commercial uh, people, uh, in the academia, among students, it's very important that, that, that students 
in there uh, when they study law and, and also uh, in some other areas, related areas su such as commerce, that they are learning the, the newest law, the law that will govern uh, their transactions when they enter into, into practice. But I would like to mention also one uh, admonition in our mandate, which was given to Ancitral by the, uh, by the General Assembly, that we should bear in mind the interests of all states, but in particular of developing states. And I think Ancitral has, has borne this, uh, this admonition in mind. We, we indeed are always mindful of the fact uh, that uh, the countries that are in the greatest need of a modern legal regime, in greatest need of, of an increased trade, and in greatest need of being a hospitable environment uh, for foreign investment, that, that's, that uh, these are developing countries. Because there is no, uh, we will not improve the situation in developing countries through aid. It is trade that will eliminate poverty and that will uh, in, uh, you know, increase the, the, the economic development. And uh, Ancitral uh, is an intergovernmental body, uh, but it is also for reasons of efficiency and, and ease of negotiations, uh, it, it, it wouldn't be uh, the best way if, if all countries of the world, close to 200 of them, would uh, sit at the round table and would negotiate uh, these rather complex and technical issues. So the General Assembly elects uh, from its membership 60 governments who should be, who are members of ANSITRAL. And each region has a particular number of states, which should guarantee that, that all regions of the world are well represented. And these 60 states uh, meet once a year, uh, and they adopt decisions, such as they adopt model laws, they adopt legislative guides, and, and, and all kinds of texts. Uh, but when ANSITRAL formulates an international treaty, then it formulates a draft treaty and puts it forward to the General Assembly, which then either opens this, the, the draft treaty for signature itself or convenes a diplomatic uh, conference. Uh, it is a feature, a very important feature of UNCITRAL that it virtually never adopts decisions by voting. We discuss texts, draft texts, uh, to such a degree that we reach agreement. And should we not be able to reach agreement? And I don't mean agreement by unanimity through vote, but in a particular way that, is, that we call consensus, where, where participants in the negotiations do not object to the result of the, uh, of the negotiations. Uh, 
we, we, if we do not reach consensus, then we drop the subject. And we pick up subjects where countries want to arrive at a good result. And uh, I think it is worthwhile to mention that while in the UN, in, in some more political bodies, such as the Security Council or, uh, or some other human rights uh, bodies and so forth, you see uh, frictions among states. You, you, you see disagreements uh, which are based on ideology or, or, or different real interests. But when we speak about international trade, it is perhaps, uh, it would come not as a, uh, as, as a surprise that governments, despite their different ideologies, the, despite their geopolitical interests, have the same interests when it comes to trade. In the old days, when we had the Soviet Union and the United States as, as two political blocs, which disagreed on, on many issues in the Security Council, in UNCITRAL, they actually sat next to each other for reasons of, of, of the alphabet, the USSR and, and the USA, they very rarely disagreed. Because when it comes to doing business, selling and buying goods and services, the interests are the same, which is actually uh, a blessing for UNCITRAL. UNCITRAL has been so successful in, in, its, uh, in its work and its results, its texts are so well received precisely because governments participate in their formulation with a real interest. Because international trade is, uh, is, is so important for everybody. Now, UNCITRAL is about international trade, as I said, and the law of international trade. And it has trade law in its title. But you also have a very important international organization called the World Trade Organization, which is also formulating very important uh, rules governing international trade. What is the difference between the two? Uh, and, and that question we, we, we often receive. The, actually, we do not overlap. We work in different areas. UNCITRAL is focusing on relations between merchants, between individual enterprises or companies when they enter into uh, contractual relations of, of different nature. Whereas WTO, the World Trade Organization, is formulating rules binding on states in the sense that the states in the context of WTO commit themselves to reducing or eliminating uh, customs, tariff, uh, barriers to international trade, or also non-tariff, non customs barriers to international trade. And, uh, and both are very important. Uh, while the WTO is about freedom of international trade, it does nothing in itself uh, to facilitate contractual relations between individual companies. Here is where UNCITRAL does its bit. So, so we complement each other, but not, uh, not 
overlap. Uh, now, how does Ancitral do its work? What kind of texts do we prepare? I think they can be divided in, into two large groups. Uh, one is uh, the legislative texts, texts that are directed to national legislators, which then incorporate them into th in, in, in different ways into their national laws. And the other group are non-legislative texts, which are addressed directly to merchants, which use them as they see fit or when they see fit. Now, in legislative texts, the classical way of formulating rules, international rules binding upon governments, are international treaties, international conventions, which, as you know, a, a treaty is a is a contract, a pact, entered into between two or more states where the states say we oblige ourselves to translate, to, to transform the content of the treaty into our national law. And uh, they, once they enter into this solemn commitment, they, the states are also not free to change their domestic law afterwards without notifying all other contracting states uh, to the treaty. So the treaty is the perhaps the most effective and uh, in the view of some, the best way of uh, formulating uh, the laws of international trade. Because traders, once they have a treaty, they have the highest level of confidence that the laws of states that are parties to a treaty have a certain content, and which is very important for transparency, for legal certainty, and, 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 and so forth. And, and we have produced a lot of treaties. Uh, but that quality of a treaty can be, in some circumstances, also a liability, in the sense that uh, if a state does not like a single provision of a treaty, uh, it is unable to adopt the treaty. For that reason, uh, some treaties take a long time before uh, states join the, the convention. And uh, for that reason, you know, it, uh, it, is, it is perhaps not, uh, not as effective uh, as, as it might seem at first glance. And in particular, in, in areas where governments are somewhat jealous of their national legal traditions and are finding it difficult to incorporate in the national legal system a text that is, uh, that is perhaps not in every detail in line with their legal traditions, uh, there a treaty, despite its qualities, is perhaps is not the best vehicle to formulate rules. Uh, it is, in such cases, useful to leave governments a certain leeway in adapting the harmonized text to their legal tradition or, or their particular circumstances. And traditionally, when we talk about procedural laws, laws governing court procedures or arbitral procedures, the governments are more sensitive to this or, or are less uh, inclined to, to adopting unified solutions. So in those cases, 
we would, instead of uh, the convention, use the vehicle of what we call model law, which is which looks like a outwardly like a treaty, but is not a, an agreement between governments. It is a model which the national legislator can take, can incorporate as is, and it is advisable that, that they incorporate the model as is, but they are free to make adjustments, which they are not free to make such adjustments in a treaty, which is a, unless there are reservations, but it's a very, very formal process. And uh, Ancitral has also uh, formulated some very successful uh, model laws. And, uh, and we are also keenly following the way the national governments are, uh, have, have incorporated the model laws in the national legal systems. Some with, with a lot of changes, some with less changes, and some with, with virtually no changes. But there are also legal areas where governments are unable to agree on a single legislative text that looks like a law, like a statute, because the legal traditions are too different. Or you are dealing with issues that are, uh, that where, 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 where governments really feel that, that they have to formulate their own national solutions. And yet, they are desirous of some international guidance as to what should uh, the content of, of these laws be. And in such case, we would not, obviously not go for a treaty, we would not go for a model law, we would go for a form which we call legislative guide. A legislative guide is a text which in a, in a narrative form explains to the reader, typically the, the legislative uh, organs, the legislative officials in, in national governments, uh, what are the policy choices that the national government has? Uh, what, are, what is the experience with these choices? What are the implications of these choices? Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of particular solutions? And, in, and, and also, what is the interrelationship with, with other provisions? Uh, of course, it, is, uh, it requires much more work and study uh, for a national government to incorporate the, the, the gist of the legislative guide into the national laws than a model law or a treaty. But it is a suitable vehicle for in, in, in many areas. And Ancitral has done that uh, in, in some areas. I will, I will perhaps say a word or two about this uh, later. Uh, sometimes we are called upon to prepare not a, uh, not a text that governs a particular area, but just one or several provisions governing very isolated points. In, in such a case, we would uh, formulate what we call model legislative provisions, which the governments, when they feel the need for, where there is an, a need for, for, for dealing with, 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 with such issues, uh, they just use the model prepared by, by, by Ancitral. And ultimately, I would like to mention one 
vehicle for harmonizing uh, rules governing international trade uh, at the end, and that is a recommendation formulated by Ansietral as to how an existing legislative text, which has been enacted by governments, should be interpreted. You will appreciate that uh, a text in the hands of a multitude of national judges and a multitude of arbitrators will be, from time to time, and, and it happens often, interpreted in different ways. And that is, of course, a problem. Uh, in particular, if that uh, means a certain level of, of uncertainty for those that are using or relying on a particular text. And in such a case, it is useful if there is a body that recommends what the good or intended interpretation should be of a particular provision. And uh, we have not done many of these uh, things, but uh, recently we have issued, and I'll start with the example now, uh, we have issued a recommendation for the interpretation of Article 2 of the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards, the convention known commonly as the Newer Convention which was entered into in 1958, a very important convention for international trade, but there was a, a bit of uncertainty in uh, interpreting the provision in that convention on the form of the arbitration agreement. And in order to reduce that uncertainty, eliminate that, that uncertainty, we have issued a recommendation. And that recommendation is out there for the benefit of judges and uh, arbitrators to use it. And uh, of course, these are not binding, but, 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 but they are, there is authority of UNCITRA behind them, so uh, we have uh, indications that indeed uh, um, this, interpretation, this recommendation has had some, some traction. Mm -hmm. All right, so we are recording so you can begin whenever you're ready. My name is Yerne Sekulitz. I am Secretary of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, known as UNCITRAL. And today we will be speaking about legislation governing arbitration. And uh, UNCITRAL is a big name in arbitration. If UNCITRAL is known in the world under the name of UNCITRAL, it is perhaps uh, most known in practitioners dealing with, with, with arbitration. Now, when we speak about legislation governing arbitration, we are talking about laws governing the process, the procedure uh, of uh, how arbitration is being conducted and how arbitral awards or decisions are being treated. We are not talking about legislation that governs the rights and obligations of parties involved in contractual arrangements that might contain uh, an arbitration agreement. Uh, such legislation, being the legislation of a country, governs 
arbitral proceedings that take place in that country that has adopted the law. Uh, and the parties typically choose that country. So to some degree or to a large degree, the parties control which law will apply to their arbitration by virtue of agreeing on the place of arbitration or the seat of arbitration. That does not mean that the parties or the arbitrators cannot choose to conduct certain portions of arbitral proceedings, such as hearing witnesses or holding consultations or inspecting documents or other evidence outside that country. Uh, even if they do these things abroad in, in different countries, even if the majority of those acts are performed in abroad, but the seat of the agreed seat of arbitration is in a particular country, it will be the law of that country that will govern the process. Uh, when the parties negotiate their their contracts, uh, they uh, first agree on, on the technical aspects and the commercial aspects, the price, the terms of delivery, and, and, and so forth. And inevitably, and typically at the end of the contract negotiations, they, they turn to uh, what will happen if we have a dispute. Uh, and, and this is, I would say, in the majority of cases, literally the last clause they sort out and then they proceed to signing the contract. And when they negotiate that, that clause, there is a certain type of atmosphere which we have to bear in mind. First is that uh, a typical party uh, doesn't have really much knowledge, uh, specialized knowledge, about arbitral procedure. So they do not want to get involved or enmeshed in, in discussing uh, arcane points of arbitral procedure, what happens if this happens and something else. So, so they want standardized solutions. They want to be able to agree on certain main points and the rest they leave to the standard rules that they may have agreed upon and the law that will govern the arbitration. And what are those uh, typical uh, points that they might deal with in their arbitration clause? First, uh, they are well advised to settle on the place of arbitration or seat of arbitration because that will be the law governing their process. They uh, may wish to choose the arbitral institution uh, whose rules will then govern the process and whose rules will then govern issues such as the appointment of arbitrators, replacement of arbitrators, challenge of arbitrators and, and so forth. Uh, and they are often well advised to choose an arbitral institution, in particular in those cases where they really have, uh, do not have much experience with arbitration. They may also opt for the so-called ad hoc arbitration, where there is no institution providing administrative uh, services to the parties uh, and arbitrators. And in that case, they should, or they are well advised, to agree on the number of arbitrators, on the language of arbitral proceedings uh, and perhaps also the appointment process of the arbitrators should uh, there be a difficulty there. But that's about it. They do not want to get involved in, in further detail for several reasons. One is perhaps a psychological one. The parties at the beginning of the transaction, when they have uh, concluded the contract, they are optimistic about their 
future cooperation. And they don't like to think about what will happen if they have a dispute. It's something like when a couple marries, they don't want to talk about what happens if they would divorce. Some do, but if you do, you really try to make it rather routine rather, uh, instead of uh, something very, very big. And secondly, uh, it is because this is a specialized type of knowledge, uh, if their lawyers that often participate in contract negotiations would spend a lot of time negotiating s details of arbitration, they would, the parties would get nervous and might even think that the lawyers are overlawyering the process. Uh, but so in order to simplify this process, to make it as straightforward as possible, it is very good that there be a law that will provide a very good background to this process and that will allow the parties to really deal with this issue simply in a standardized fashion. So uh, let's ask ourselves, what should such a law say? What should be its content in order to uh, to meet the needs, the typical needs of parties involved in, I would say, in the first uh, place, international trade, but also in domestic trade. Uh, first, the law should recognize the freedom of the parties to agree to arbitrate or should respect the agreement of the parties to, to arbitrate uh, and that agreement should, the parties should be able to, uh, to reach that agreement in the fashion that they are used to. That agreement should not be subject to overly, uh, to, to, uh, to formal requirements that the parties do not expect. Let me give you an example. Uh, the parties uh, often, not often, but may conclude a contract in the following way. One party gives an offer to the other party, and the other party, instead of formally adopting or accepting that, that offer by a document, by a signed document, just delivers the goods. Or orally accepts the offer and says, yes, we have a deal. Such a contract, if it's a sales contract, an export or an import contract, is perfectly valid. But under some laws, the arbitration agreement enter into in such a way where one party in a tacit way agrees to a contract is not sufficient for a valid arbitration agreement. And that might come to us as a surprise to the parties. So, so, so we should have such rules that, that will naturally require that the parties agree to arbitrate, but that would not be overly formalistic uh, in the formal requirements. Some antiquated laws required uh, you know, a signed document, uh, certain approvals by third parties, uh, specific reference to the arbitration clause and so forth. All this is uh, outdated for the needs of the modern commerce. The second feature that a good law on arbitration should have is that uh, it should not contain mandatory rules that in an unreasonable way limit the party's autonomy. Uh, like, for example, there were laws, they might even exist uh, in some places, 
that only citizens of the country may be arbitrators, or that only uh, lawyers admitted to practice in a particular country may represent parties in international arbitration. That is unreasonable. The parties have to be free to choose their arbitrators and to choose their legal advisors, irrespective of where they arbitrate. Uh, thirdly, uh, a law should take account of the fact that sometimes the parties uh, are really very laconic, very short in their arbitration agreements. In particular, when they include them, when they enter into such agreements by uh, in in language that is very very economical, they might say at the end of the contract nothing but arbitration in Hamburg. Three words. And the underlying law in Germany must provide the minimum set of procedural rules that will allow the parties to commence the arbitral proceedings, that will allow the arbitral tribunal to conduct the process without uh, interruptions, and that the end product, the award, will be enforceable. So, so there must be a minimum set of, uh, of procedural rules. Uh, it should also, such a law, allow the arbitrators to conduct the process in the way they consider appropriate, bearing in mind, of course, the mandatory law, uh, bearing in mind the fundamental uh, principles of justice, the equality of the parties, and, and so forth. But essentially, they should be able to shape that process the way they want. And this is extremely important because there is no one model of how to uh, run an arbitration. If the arbitrators and the parties come from, say, the United States, the way they would deal with procedural issues would, be, would, would have a particular, I would say, US flavor. If the parties would come from Egypt and the arbitrators, it would have a, perhaps another flavor. If the parties would come from Russia, it would be yet another variation. And they are all good. They're all legitimate ways of running the process. And uh, yet uh, another country and the arbitrators are a mix of different legal traditions. They have to be able to first agree how they will uh, run the process, and they should be free as to how they should run the process. So the, the law has to be fairly liberal and not impose undue limitations on, on their freedom. Of course, respecting the fundamental principles of procedural justice. Uh, next, a good law should provide for solutions when there is a crisis in a process. And a crisis might arise because one party refuses to appoint its arbitrator, or where, where one of the arbitrators behaves inappropriately and one party challenges that arbitrator. And there must be someone who will remove that arbitrator if, if appropriate. What if an arbitrator becomes ill or cannot uh, perform uh, his or her duties. Again, there must be a, me a method for, for replacing the arbitrator. And so the law has to have, a, again, a minimum set of, uh, of procedures where the parties can turn, if they haven't agreed on something else, to the court of the place of arbitration to appoint, remove, replace an arbitrator, for example. Uh, 
it is also necessary that the law in the interest of the parties themselves and in the interest of, of respecting public policy uh, does not allow uh, miscarriage of justice. That's one expression that, that, that I might use. If something goes wrong, if, if the, for some reason there is fraud, there is corruption, uh, one party is being tre treated unfairly, there must be a way how to put this right. So there must be certain supervision there. For example, the arbitral tribunal might overstep the powers it was given by the parties. So one party has to have a way how to approach the court and, and stop that, challenge the jurisdiction of the, of the arbitral tribunal, for example. So, so, so that, that, that has to be in. And lastly, naturally, the parties go to arbitration because they, they, they want a speedy settlement of the dispute and they want an award, a decision that is final and enforceable. So there must be a straightforward, simple way to enforce their award. And again, th there are standards, international standards, uh, established uh, some 50 years ago by the New York Convention, 1958 New York Convention, which, uh, which everybody accepts as suitable standards for uh, enforcing arbitral awards. Now, you can express these principles or these desires, these wishes or these needs in different ways, but there is one particular way of expressing them that is uh, known worldwide, that is acceptable worldwide, and that has in fact been accepted in a large number of jurisdictions worldwide. It is the ANSITRAL Model Law on International Commercial Arbitration, adopted in 1985 and revised in two respects in 2006. And uh, if a country wishes to have a modern, uh, uh, modern law on arbitration, it can confidently basically copy uh, the UNCITRAL model law into its legislation and it can, have, it can be confident that it has a good law because it has been time tested. There is a lot of case law about the UNCITRAL model law. The UNCITRAL itself publishes uh, case law in the